0: Protestants here so we're protesting well the fifth commandment is what we're looking at this morning we're looking at one of the impl- well really an implication of the fifth commandment which is to honor the authorities and so you can turn with me to Exodus chapter 20 we're just going to be looking at that one verse verse 12 again but we will be jumping around this is more of a topical sermon on the concept of honoring the authorities. Um, So you'll have to follow along at your pace, but just wanted to set up our our discussion here a little bit of context and background. Uh, Several values have shaped American culture since our founding. Those who crossed the Atlantic on the Mayflower were were mostly Puritans with an appreciation for Reformed theology. Uh, They sought freedom of religion and took extreme measures in order to find that freedom. Uh, Half of the Pilgrims died during that first winter in Plymouth. And in fact, November 11th of this year will be the 400th anniversary of Mayflower, of the Mayflower landing at Cape Cod. So there were actually plans of celebrations in uh, Netherlands, England, and and the U.S. uh, that I think most of them are being canceled or radically restructured because of coronavirus. But it is still a time to celebrate and recognize um, that anniversary. But although there were strong influences, strong Christian influences, from that first Plymouth colony, many of the founding fathers among later generations, were heavily guided by the French Enlightenment ideals of Locke, Voltaire, and Rousseau, who, among many other good ideas, also encouraged revolution and rebellion against corrupt monarchs, which can also be good and mixed with some, some bad. Right? The more that our founding fathers adopted Enlightenment views, the more uncertain their foundation of a biblical worldview became. So a rebellious individualism, much of which can be unbiblical, became the moral norm in our culture. At the same time, it's important to note that history is a lot more complicated than just those two polarizing ideas, right? Many Christians came to uh, colonize America. Many were radically influenced by unbiblical ideas. But there was a concept called the doctrine of the lesser magistrates that began developing in the 12th uh, century. During the Protestant Reformation, John Calvin actually elaborated on that view where the idea is that these lesser or lower magistrates have a duty to rebel, revolt against the higher magistrates who are operating in an unjust way. And so the, the, this doctrine began, began to be elaborated by Calvin, and then later theologians such as John Knox, Samuel Rutherford, and Theodore Theodor Beza also argued that inferior magistrates must resist unjust rulers, and some of these theologians even permitted or required citizens to do so, according to Mark David Hall. Now I didn't go into the details and it was hard for me to understand exactly which ones mentioned citizens in their instruction of the doctrine of, civil ma- of the lesser magistrates, but it's something to consider. I think it's a, a valuable doctrine to study. Um, and I've only mentioned some of the more renowned names, some of the more renowned theologians like Knox, Rutherford and Beza and Calvin. Um, but Mark David Hall mentioned several others as well from various regions as they were developing this concept. So all of these Reformed theologians, they wrote before John Locke. And so their theological views were actually held among many of those early colonists, and they continue to be held even through the founding of this nation. So that 55 to even 75% of those uh, first colonists, especially among the elite class, were the ones actually contributing to the laws and writing out the Declaration of Independence, these kinds of things. I mean, obviously Thomas Jefferson wrote that, and he wasn't coming from a Calvinist point of view. Uh, but he was influenced by Locke. Locke was likely influenced by the theologians who came before him. So it's it's interesting to note that anywhere from 50 to 75% uh, of those elite class were actually Calvinists in those first uh, in that first century of the founding America so not all authorities are worthy of the same degree of respect and they were wrestling with how they could rebel or revolt against the tyranny of England of King George especially so maybe they they earned a level of scrutiny because they repeatedly exemplify wicked leadership values the higher magistrates some are easier for us to despise than others even now as we honor some magistrates who are at even the same level and authority as others right? that we despise we tend to look at the person rather than the office we tend to look at their character and and either defy or honor based upon that and I think when we read scripture we come away with a different view Uh, we we don't have the idea that we can simply decide when we defy based upon a person's character Uh, maybe they've earned that level of scrutiny, but the doctrine of lesser magistrates, it was not a core belief of the reformers. It's, in fact, something that you probably haven't heard of until recently, because it's just not written about that much. Um, we, we really don't even know how many of our theologians through the years, how much of a consensus there was for this view. It's not as if Calvin wrote it and everyone said, therefore it's written in stone, and now everyone adopts his view. That's clearly not what happened in history, especially on the matters of how we relate to civil magistrates. So we need to be on guard about latching onto a somewhat obscure doctrine in order to support what really is a political presupposition. we start with a particular political value and then we start to mine the scriptures to defend that value that's called eisegesis and we criticize liberals all the time for that approach i think we need to be very careful that we're not doing the same thing here let's allow god's word to reform our politics not the other way around And so we should take care that we do not become so dogmatic in our reactions against politicians that we find ourselves at odds with, uh, or that we end up finding ourselves at odds with Scripture in doing so. Just because you do not like the politics of a particular authority does not mean that God grants you permission to disrespect or defy them. We need to keep our words, thoughts, and actions in check with regard to this commandment as we do the other nine. And I hope to explain what I mean by that as we move on. So before we read this verse in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for this time to sit under it. And we do ask that you would give us the ability to give our full attention to you. By your spirit, Lord, open our eyes give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us hearts that are softened to respond in obedience to this truth, that we would be doers of your word and not hearers only. For your glory we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Exodus chapter 20 verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, this morning we will consider the other authorities. As I've mentioned, we looked at the parents two weeks ago, or the parent-child relationship two weeks ago. This time we'll look at uh, two. Primarily focus on two additional authorities, but there are many levels of authorities that God has placed over us. You can. We didn't. I'm not going to take the time to talk about teachers in your lives, but you, your parents may may place children under the tutoring or, or teaching of other others and, and while that's that's not a passing off in in many ways of the uh responsibility of teaching the parents still have that primary responsibility but in in many ways now that teacher is becomes another authority in a child's life right that must be respected and honored so this this morning we'll consider those authorities um looking at the church and the civil authorities focusing most of our time on the civil authorities as it relates to our Present circumstances. So, two weeks ago, we focused solely upon the relationship between parents and children. It is the language of the commandment, as I just read, but it follows that all relationships between superiors, inferiors, and equals are in view, and that's what you find in all of the reform catechisms. But it elaborates much further beyond the parents, uh, the family structure. So, the Westminster Larger Catechism uses the categories of family, church, and commonwealth as the main categories of understanding or looking at these structures of authority and so we'll focus on those last two of the church and civil authorities this morning god claims authority over the civil realm he utilizes civil authorities for his purposes we should recognize their god-given role and respect them for the office they hold respect is due to the office in fact the preacher argues in Ecclesiastes chapter 10 verse 20 that we should not curse the king even in our thoughts. And as governor of Judea Pilate was not the ultimate authority, but he reported to the Roman emperor Tiberius. And yet Jesus still recognized his authority over him in John 19:11. The apostle Paul agreed with this in which we read in Romans 13:1 that there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So scripture does not have particular government systems in mind when it commands us to honor our authorities. Various civil authorities in America would include the legislative, executive, and judicial branches of our government, And so we are to honor all individuals whom God has placed in particular spheres of power over us. Even those at the lowest levels of authority. They do have certain spheres in which they primarily operate. But there are numerous examples of where those authorities overlap. If you have a very strict sphere of authority... in in, in the sense that they never overlap, um, then you're going to find yourself in quite a bit of conflict here in America uh, because those spheres just are constantly overlapping. And, And I think scripture allows for that overlap. We should also recognize the importance of religious authorities, right? In the Old Testament, there were prophets, there were priests and kings who ruled the people and provided them with that ecclesial instruction in the New Testament, the apostles established after the Apostolic Age to carry on a Presbyterian form of government. Now, Presbyterian just means elder-led. So even in, if, if uh, you know, our, our Baptist brothers and sisters, they should recognize that a church should be led by a plurality of elders. And that's the format we have in Scripture handed down to us from the apostles. So a, a plurality of elders, each with equal authority, provide oversight to the church. Elders are responsible and must give account for how they watched over the souls of their flock, according to Hebrews 13, 17. And so it's a heavy matter that that sometimes will require discipline. And all elders are given warnings about how they are to govern, which allows church members to appeal and to even correct elders who have overstepped their boundaries. First Peter chapter 5 verses 1 through 3. So John Calvin argued that the fifth commandment speaks of our parents primarily because they are the least likely to be the recipients of our defiance. Now, as we're young and we're learning about our boundaries and our parents establish in our lives, sometimes we, we test the boundaries there. But, but we know that in general, as a general rule and principle, we know that our parents love us much more than civil authorities do. And so we, we are less likely to rebel and defy against them in that way. So this, this is Calvin's reasoning, that we're least likely to be the recipients of our, de- the parents are least likely to be the recipients of our defiance. And we're more naturally inclined to recognize their importance to our well-being. You know, parents can, can prepare us and equip us far better than any outside authority. They can also damage us much worse than any outside authority. parents have a huge task and responsibility. But in learning how we are to honor our parents, Calvin elaborates and he says that we are actually building a habit of submitting to every other authority that God has appointed. As we grow up and we mature and we learn to be less defiant and we learn that there are consequences for our defiance against our parents, it's preparing us for responding to other authorities that God brings into our lives. So Calvin acknowledges that it does not make any difference whether those authorities are worthy of this honor or not. He's re- referring to their character there. They have not come to their office by way of, or sorry, they have come to their office by way of divine providence, and therefore God commands us to show them honor because of who placed them there. And so if honoring your parents is honoring to the Lord, as we mentioned two weeks ago, then dishonoring other authorities dishonors the Lord as well. And so let's look at some of the practical teaching of how we must honor. We recognize who we must honor is all those authorities, especially focusing on civil and church authorities, but how we must honor is described in our Westminster Larger Catechism. In fact, 11 questions are devoted to this command questions 123 through 133 and i want to encourage you as families to to reflect upon these questions and answers reflect upon the scripture proofs that are given to them maybe spend some time in your family worship this week doing that but allow me to briefly summarize some of those answers now in the 125th question of the larger catechism authorities are described as as having the responsibility to love and care for their inferiors just like natural parents So if you're in a a position of authority, it's good for you, even outside of the home, to consider your position as one of a parent. That means your your first responsibility is to love and care and provide for those inferiors uh, that you're overseeing. And inferiors ought to have a willingness to obey their superiors as to their parents. Reflect on that. How often do you think of the authorities in your lives as deserving of the kind of honor that your parents are worthy of or deserving for their office? Think about question 127. It says that we are to honor or honor involves the offer of due reverence, prayer, thanksgiving, obedience to lawful commands and counsels, among many other things. I'm just giving you a summary. Inferiors are to submit and show fidelity to superiors while also bearing in patience with their infirmities, recognizing that they are not going to be perfect. So we bear patient. We, we endure patiently with those infirmities. The next uh, question, 128, says that inferiors sin against their superiors by their neglect of duties required by envying And by contempt of their person, and by rebellion against their lawful counsels, commands, and corrections. The key word there is lawful, and many disagree on how we understand and define that word. But rebellion against their lawful counsels, commands, and corrections would be sinful, according to the larger catechism, question One Twenty-Eight. And then 129 says at the the same time our authorities should show love and compassion to their subjects, to their, their inferiors. They should instruct them in doing well and offer appropriate reproof and chastisement to those who do evil. They ought to provide protection with wisdom and respect the gravity of their office. And if they take their role flippantly, then they're in sin. If they honor evil, or do not reward the good. They're in sin. And then question 130 says that authorities who fail in their duties or serve themselves or seek their own glory, which which so many politicians on every side of the aisle do, if they command what is unlawful, if they support evil, if they discourage good, then they should be rebuked and in some cases defied. So determining what is lawful and unlawful, I believe, always has reference to Scripture as our final authority. We don't define lawful and unlawful in American terms by looking at the Constitution. That might help us to understand what is just or unjust, or even how to apply it in our context. But what we understand to be unlawful needs to primarily come from Scripture. It is, uh, it is rebellion against God's law. So believers must patiently endure with their inth- authorities even when we feel like we are being treated unfairly, according to Peter in First Peter chapter 2. We can show honor and patience while we make our respectful appeal regarding their perceived injustice. And so there are, there are always, there need to be, Opportunities to appeal to that authority, to, to, to raise our objections. But even in doing so, we must continue to honor. We don't simply ignore their authority in the process. And so we find no better example of offering obedience than in the life and death of Jesus Christ. Right? He perfectly obeyed his heavenly father, which included honoring his parents and the civil authorities he encountered throughout his ministry. He submitted to the will of his Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26, verse 39. And he was obedient to the point of death, Philippians 2.8. And it's in his obedience to death on the cross that Christ redeemed us from sin and death that our disobedience deserved. He takes our disobedience upon himself, and in exchange he gives us his perfect righteousness and since we have been redeemed, we are now being renewed into the image of Jesus, according to Romans eight twenty nine. We can now love him because he first loved us, according to 1 John 4, 19. And so the humble obedience of Christ not only becomes our model, but his spirit enables us to follow his model. So again, we honor our authorities because the spirit of Christ is making us into the image of Christ who perfectly honored his authorities. And so in light of the of this truth, we can show honor even to those authorities who are unworthy or will never reward our obedience. This is what was on the mind of Paul as he wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, which we read two weeks ago. In that case, when we are... Obedient or showing honor to those authorities who are unworthy or who never reward our obedience, in that case, it's our Heavenly Father who will see our good deeds and reward us. And so when our good, honest effort is met with indignity, instead of being frustrated, we look forward to God's appreciation. On the flip side... I think you could say any defiance against a lawful command of our earthly authorities will result in the loss of rewards. That's the implication of that passage. And so let's briefly conclude with the rare occasions where we must dishonor. We are not required to honor all of our authorities in the same manner. That's why they've established checks and balances upon the powers that provide accountability. And most importantly, even the highest earthly authority remains under the authority of God. Therefore, no one can command anyone to do anything that Scripture deems sinful, no matter what office they hold. When the apostles were told that they could no longer preach the gospel, they responded, we must obey God rather than men, in Acts 5.29. You have many examples of that, where in, in Daniel, with, with Daniel's own response to praying, uh, despite the command from the king that he should refrain from, or only pray to, to him, or refrain from praying to any other god. Uh, You have this example with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and their faithfulness. When we are commanded to do something that God forbids or that is sinful, we must obey God rather than men. So Peter provides the basic instruction to believers. Fear God, honor the emperor. Fear God is first. And in our fear of God, we honor the emperor. And just prior to that, he acknowledges that God has appointed those in lower levels of authority as well. It is is right and proper, however, to rebuke our governing authorities when they have acted wickedly. Rebuking them and, and reproving them is not wrong. That's not dishonoring to them. You have examples of this, right? John the Baptist rebuked Herod for marrying his brother's wife Herodias. Matthew chapter 14 it ultimately got him killed and after Herod beheaded John Jesus referred to Herod as that fox in Luke 13:32 so there's a recognition that that this king was clearly outside of he was he was he was bringing injustice with his authority So the session has spent some considerable amount of time thinking about these things over the last few months. And, and while the principle seems simple enough, the application is oftentimes quite challenging. When our civil authorities leave their sphere or they expand their sphere so that it enters into the ecclesiastical sphere, we may rightly give them some pushback. However, even then, I think we should take care to honor them with our obedience, as long as their command does not violate scripture. And so the general principle is this, that civil disobedience is called for when an authority commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands. when you look at the Westminster Confession of Faith on the chapter of Civil Magistrate, which is chapter 23, uh, we learn of the separation of spheres. It uses that same idea, that language of separation of spheres of civil and church authorities. Civil authorities, our 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 confession of faith says, civil authorities may not in the least interfere in matters of faith. And all ecclesiastical persons, whatever, shall enjoy the full, free, and unquestioned liberty of discharging every part of their sacred functions without violence or danger. And most relevant to our current situation, it is the duty of civil magistrates to take order that all religious and ecclesiastical assemblies be held without molestation or disturbance. That's found in section three of chapter 20. So apart from a significant and imminent threat, and we've talked about that before, the idea say there's an active shooter on top of our church building on the roof and they're slaughtering everyone who tries to enter. And the police say, no, you guys, they set up barricades and they say, you cannot come and enter into this building. Sorry, church is closed today. I think we would look up and say, Yeah, that's not not something I want to walk into. The Lord has providentially hindered our participation in worship on a day like that. And we still honor the day. We still worship him in other ways. But on that day, we're not going to be able to gather as we typically would. If there were a massive flood, you're not going to be expected to wade through it in order to come to um, the assembly. Everything would be destroyed anyways. So there's examples where we would say it would be right and proper to to shut down even the gathering of the saints right there'd be like this this entire overshadowing of the sphere of our ecclesiastical authority in that moment but that clear and imminent threat is a significant um part of that definition right if if we don't see the active shooter if they're telling us something that doesn't exist if they're saying there's some boogeyman or some monster that we know doesn't exist and if we go in there And we make any noise, if we sing, we're going to be killed by this monster. Well, that's not a threat we would take seriously. So apart from that significant and imminent threat, we need to protect our God-given duty to gather for worship. That is a command in Scripture. Hebrews 10 says not to forsake gathering of the saints as some are in the habit of doing. We should not be comfortable with virtual worship. We've said that many times. That shouldn't be our default You shouldn't say, well, if I can gather uh, comfortably, then I'll do it. No, even even gathering uncomfortably is worth doing because we are commanded to gather. In America, we need to stand up for our First Amendment rights. We have the freedom to gather. But if I can fully discharge my duties without hindrance then I should also honor the governor. Even if that means I have to endure some additional inconveniences in moving our service outdoors. Even if that means we have to get here a little early and set up and tear down. To rebel against the governor's lawful commands is to sin against God. And I think one of the more helpful commentaries on this passage of the confession of faith is, is Alexander Hodge A. A. Hodge in his commentary on the confession he writes the limit of this obligation this obligation to honor the civil magistrate the limit to this obligation to obedience will be found only when we are commanded to do something contrary to the superior authority of God that's a, that's a high standard to set Or, he says, when the civil government has become so radically and incurably corrupt that it has ceased to accomplish the ends for which it was established. That's also a very high bar. Radically and incurably corrupt that it has ceased to accomplish the ends for which it was established. When that point has unquestionably been reached, I don't think anyone is suggesting that it's unquestionably been reached yet. When all means of redress have been exhausted without avail, when there appears no prospect of securing reform in the government itself and some good prospect of securing it by revolution, then it is the privilege and duty of a Christian, of a Christian people, to change their government peacefully if they may, forcibly if they must. So certainly there are opportunities and there are times that will require that civil disobedience. But it should come after much effort, much long-suffering, enduring patiently with the infirmities of our authorities. And so I want to conclude with this: None of us have a perfect track record on obedience to authorities. All of us have defied our parents. We have dishonored civil, or uh, we've dishonored church authorities, and we have likely all disobeyed our civil authorities, whether that be in action, in word, or in thought. So, what do we do when we dishonor the authorities that God has placed over us? Well, once again, we repent. And we turn to Christ as the only human who perfectly honored his heavenly father. Because of Christ's perfect righteousness, we have been filled with the Holy Spirit and enabled to endeavor after new obedience, trusting that we have been forgiven and restored. And so this this, this is why it's a privilege, again, to conclude our service with coming before the Lord in repentance and faith and, and being restored to the Lord's table this is an important time for us to be reminded of Christ's goodness to us of the gospel message and then of this visible participation in the gospel so let's ask for his blessing upon this time Heavenly Father we thank you that we have.